Greetings, brethren. Hopefully all of us have been able to catch our breath here somewhat during some of the busiest time of God's Holy Day calendar for us. We're, of course, de-leavening, and we go through self-examination, and then there's Passover, the night to be much observed, and then the first day of unleavened bread, an extremely busy time of the year. And we know God knows what he's doing. If we humans would organize it, we might spread it out a little more. But God has a purpose, I'm sure, and we learn from it. I've always in the past heard some people joke by saying, well, really, right before Passover and unleavened bread, it might be a good time to simply move to another house. And that actually happened one year for us. And in truth, I ended up having to de-leaving my wife and I, of course, de-leaving two homes, the one we were leaving and the one we were moving into. And I guess really it's a reminder we can't put off or push off our leaven or our old sin onto someone else or for that matter hide it somewhere on our property. We've got to, we've got to find it, uh, discover it, and get rid of it, of course, out of our life. Well, on this very day, approximately 3,457 years ago, plus or minus, the children of Israel departed from Egypt in a very eventful period of time, and they left harsh slavery from a land of high-level paganism, as we know, and an abundance of all kinds of false gods, and gods that were partly animal, partly human, and this and that. It was also from a land of great allure, a great attraction for many, of comparative wealth, a very wealthy nation and land at that time. There was education, high level of education, at least for the upper class, and abundant food at that time as well, much like it is for us today in some ways in this society and many nations around the world. Uh, it's a very difficult time in this lifelong journey of ours, coming out of sin, coming out of the world, coming out of its allures. And that being said, our journey doesn't end as it did anciently in the deserts of Sinai or in the land of Canaan in this particular case. But our journey will end in the literal kingdom of God. That is, if we complete our journey, if we complete the training in our life, and as we become trained as kings and priests, as full-born sons of God, and we have to complete that training in this life, we can't wait to the kingdom of God, we have to finish our training now, coming out of the ways of the world, being able to think like God, be able to live like God, being able to really have more of the fruit of God's spirit. He's at peace. He has a level of joy. He has great stability, and we need to develop that mindset as well, getting rid of the mindset of the world and filling it, not leaving a void, but filling it with the very mind of God, the very way of life of God that brings peace and joy, and ultimately abundance, at least spiritual abundance in this life, and complete abundance in the kingdom of God. Today I'd like to briefly review, first of all, Israel's experience of coming out of Egypt, and then focus on one aspect of sin, or leaven, that we all need to continue to remove from our life. It's an ongoing process. It's of course, God's way of developing that mindset is a journey in our life, focusing on the kingdom of God, developing more of the very character of the great God. The title of the sermon is Beware of the Leaven of the Pharisees. Let's turn to Exodus 12 in introduction here. 
Exodus chapter 12, and beginning in verse 2, in verse 2, it says, This month shall be your beginning of months, the very first month of God's calendar, and that shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So this is the tenth day of the first month, that is Abib, spring of the year in God's calendar. It's not the it's not the winter in the northern hemisphere or the winter in the southern hemisphere for that matter, but it's the spring of the year in the northern hemisphere in Palestine. Verse 4, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. And I assume a principle here as well. God doesn't appreciate unnecessary waste, even on this sacred occasion. Verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, we don't usually think of eating goat during this time of year, but you know it's a possibility. From the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Twilight and the King James referenced as evening are between the two evenings, that is from sundown to darkness, and that, in that phase where the light begins to fade slowly but surely towards darkness. Verse 7, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Verse 8, and they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Unleavened bread, of course, could also represent Christ as well, his sinless body, his perfect sinless body, the way he lived his life and the body itself. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods, all the false gods, all the demonically inspired gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I like the translation. I am the eternal. In other words, the ever-living one. Uh, the creator of all life. So we find here, also verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of, e of Egypt. Of course, we see the, the occurrence here at midnight on the 14th. And when it occurred that the firstborn were destroyed approximately that time. Verse 22, And you, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, that is, in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. None of you shall go out. 
absolute proof by looking at this command of God that Israel didn't leave on the night of the Passover. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So they did not escape that very night of the Passover. So you might ask, some might ask, so so what's the difference anyway? The Jews observed the Passover on the night of the 15th, as we know, one day late, and combine it with their escape from Egypt. They observe the Passover and the escape from Egypt on the night of the 15th, totally contradicting Scripture as we see it here. And we properly observe Passover as commanded by God on the 14th after sundown. And what did they do, we might ask, during the daylight portion of the 14th, the daylight portion of the Passover? Well, we find from Scripture that they burned whatever remained of the Passover lamb. In verse 10, it says, And you shall let none of it remain until the morning, and what remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. The lamb represented Jesus Christ, and they treated it with respect. And today, in our Passover service, we don't, we don't leave the unleavened bread of Passover laying around for, for the next day or the following day for sandwiches or whatever. We treat it with respect. It represents the body of Christ. So normally we burn the leftover unleavened bread that was blessed at Passover. It represents the body of Christ. We burn it. We don't leave it laying around and, and admire it. And later, as some do, actually even worship what represents the body of Christ. Human tendency would be to save the bread and would be to put it in an urn. And you can see maybe the beginning of some idolatry in that process. We know the universal church claims that the bread and wine are miraculously turned into the body and blood of Christ. So we might ask, what else did the Israelites do during the daylight portion of the Passover, that is, uh, the 24-hour period, the daylight portion of the 14th? And we see in verse 33, it says, And Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall be dead because of all the plagues, the things that occurred at that time. We're all going to die. Verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was eleven, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. They had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So that really, that morning, this occurred, and that's speaking of the daylight portion of the Passover. And also on the same daylight period of the, at that time, that portion of the Passover daylight portion of Abib 14, verse 37. Verse 37. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. So on that very same day, and we think uh, possibly in the afternoon, they had to move. The Israelite nation gathered at Ramses, 
stated to be the principal city of Goshen uh, at that time, where the children of Israel were still in the land of Egypt. They were still in the land of Egypt. And so then, as later as the sun went down on the 14th, at sundown was the beginning of the 15th. What happened after sundown at the beginning of the 15th? Well, we go to Numbers chapter 33, and we see what transpires there. Numbers chapter 33 and verse 3. It says, They departed from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the month. Notice it was the 15th. And on that day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of the Egyptians. So remember, the day begins at sundown. So on the 15th day of the first month, uh, they left after sundown. They left Ramesses. And also we'll find in Deuteronomy 16.1, it kind of pinpoints more clearly when they went out. Deuteronomy 16. And verse 1, and it says, Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Notice that. It was nighttime. It was the night of the 15th then, after sundown, of course, by night. So let's summarize quickly a moment. After sundown, beginning of the 14th, they kept the Passover. They were told not to come out of their houses at night as the death angel passed over them. They were to remain safely in their homes, not come out. The next morning, still the 14th, now we're in the daylight portion of the 14th, they burned the remaining lamb and they eliminated the leftover lamb. They plundered their Egyptian neighbors, gathering gold and silver and clothing. And Egyptians said, have at it, get out of here. We, we don't want to be destroyed. And they gathered later that afternoon at Ramesses. And then as the sun went down, after sundown, now the beginning of the 15th, they left Ramesses. They left, they journeyed out of Egypt. And that was a night of great joy. A night to be much observed, which we observe as well as symbolic of us coming out of sin, coming out of, coming out of the world's way of thinking, of our former way of life, of rejecting really what the world has to offer, their attractions, materialism, sensualism, we might say as well. So in conclusion and summary, we should never let anyone deceive us into thinking just because the Jews today observe the Passover on the beginning of the 15th, that we should follow their example. That's absolutely incorrect. We follow the Scriptures, as we saw very clearly. The Passover is on the 14th, and as Israel left Egypt after sundown, beginning of the 15th, we observe the night to be much observed. It's an exciting time. When we can observe, as the Israelites did, our coming out of society, our coming out of the world, so to speak, our gaining extra stability and joy and more of the fruit of God's Spirit, even though we're still, in a sense, we're still in this age. But we can't have a higher level of joy and peace and stability, not full of fear and neurosis, as maybe some in the world do. We do have times, of course, we have some fears, but... 
as we follow God, we slowly, maybe over the years, leave those fears behind as we learn to trust God more and more. We know God is in charge of our life. He knows what he's doing. We can trust him. And in turn, as we learn to trust God, he knows he can trust us. Very critical part of our training in this life. Well, in the meantime, today, you and I have a week ahead of us. We think of it as the week of unleavened bread. We've removed the leaven out of our homes. We're eating unleavened bread, symbolic of righteousness. We're bringing good things into our life, God's way of thinking and living. In these days of unleavened bread, pictures our God leading us out of the corruption of this society and Satan's way of life and additionally filling us with his mindset, with a greater level of stability and peace and the benefits of living God's way. Well, recently as I was vacuuming our van before the start of Unleavened Bread, I kept finding small pieces of leavening hidden in very small places and crevices and you sometimes wonder, maybe you found that in your house, but you sometimes wonder, how in the world do these crumbs, these leaven crumbs, get into such hiding places? Do they crawl? Well, of course not, but uh, you know how that goes. They're, they do end up in some very hidden areas in our homes and in our cars. And we know that spiritual leaven in our lives uh, is the same way in a lot of ways, uh, they're hidden. Oftentimes, they can endure for a long time, hidden in our life, in our old way of thinking. We haven't fully come out of the world. It's kind of the nooks and the crannies of our life. We get rid of the, the big sins initially, but the nooks and the crannies and the, some of the self-centeredness, we still find that over the years, and we slowly but surely look for that leaven, that sin in our life to get rid of it. I'd like to, in the remainder of the time, look at the most insidious spiritual leaven. And, and the world is full of leaven spiritually, but one that can affect us even as we have come out of and we've committed ourselves to God and received God's Spirit. There are still hidden areas that we can be susceptible to of sin, of leaven. Luke chapter 12. Let's look at Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. We'll see a warning here from Jesus Christ to his followers, to all of us this day. Luke 12, verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. So it was a huge crowd. And he began to say to his disciples, first of all, so he's speaking to his disciples. He said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. And he said, we must be aware. We're disciples, followers of Christ. Hypocrisy. So what is meant by the leaven of hypocrisy? Well, let's look at an interesting scripture that demonstrates the whole concept of, of hypocrisy and what it reflects, some of the hidden uh, leaven that can be in our life at times, the spirit of the law. Matthew 21 We'll turn to Matthew 21 and verse 14. And we'll find a, an example here. 21, 14. Verse 14, we read, 
21:14 and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did notice they saw wonderful blessings things that he accomplished and the children crying out in the temple and saying hosanna to the son of david they were indignant uh, your margin may say they were angry in spite of the fact that they saw the, the wonderful things that he did at that time. We begin to see the concept of hypocrisy. Verse 16, and he said to them, do you, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So these were the so-called righteous chief priests, chief priests and scribes. They were indignant for these wonderful things Christ did. It really kind of threatened their power base. They didn't care, really, that he was performing an amazing service, but it threatened their power base. They wanted to remain in power and in authority. Verse 17, verse 17 and he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. Now notice this. Now in the morning, this is the very next morning after this episode, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. So very next morning, with the previous day's encounter in mind, guess what? Christ ran into a fig tree that became very representative. Verse 19, and seeing the fig tree by the road, he came to it, and found nothing on it but leaves, no figs, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. So, so notice Christ symbolically blasted the fig tree, symbolic of the Pharisees and religious leaders of uh, his day. And this is one day following, so very, very much of a, a symbol here. A very important point was driven home to his disciples. And the leaders of Christ's day attempted to look good. They wanted to look good. They wanted to look righteous. But they bore no worthwhile fruit. And that's the way it was. They made a pretense of being holy, seemed like holy and righteous. And I'm sure they wore beautiful robes and all that kind of thing. But inwardly, they were as Christ said in another place, they were whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You think, wow, that's kind of amazing. That's an amazing rebuke. And Christ's encounter with the fig tree demonstrated this principle. The tree looked good from the outside, and it appeared to be a worthwhile fig tree. But when he looked at it closely, he discovered it didn't produce fruit. It was totally worthless as far as fruit that he could eat and energize himself, it was worthless. Bottom line, hypocrisy, and applying this back to the religious leaders, is pretending to be what one is not, pretending to, to stand for principles and be inwardly really a phony, a fake, not standing for one's principles. So pretending to have character that one does not have, and that is hypocrisy. And the hypocritical leaders of Christ's day, they claimed to be righteous. They wanted to be seen as righteous. They made a pretense of being religious. 
and uh, how they appeared before God in long prayers and all the rest. But in actuality, they were anything but righteous. Let's turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and verse 1. 23, 1. It says, And Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. He's saying they're real hypocrites. Probably the worst sin is to be one who supposedly believes and stands for the truth and yet violates it. It is the opposite of character formation. We could say it is character destruction of being a hypocrite in principle. Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So they, they supposedly, you know, they make the way to God, but they put tremendous roadblocks in the way. But all their works, verse 5, they do to be seen by men, to be seen by men. Isn't that human nature? You want to be seen by others, to elevate self, be thought of as righteous and significant before God. And they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments so, you know, everyone can see. And they love the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Again, they want to be seen. They want to feel important. Greetings in the marketplace and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not, but you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. So Christ continued with this overview of Hypocrites of his day that he railed against at times. Go down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He keeps repeating the pattern here. Religious hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. And you know, generally in the church and Sabbath services and holy days, we don't make long prayers. We save those for home. And opening, closing prayers, we want to be genuine. We want to be honest before God and honor the great God, ask his blessings on the message and the hearing. But we don't make a pretense of long prayers to impress each other. And Christ said, therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, probably again to look good. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Real strong condemnation. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And so Christ used very strong language that hypocrisy, you know, seemingly the greatest sin, 
to profess to want to follow God, to want to follow Christ, and to be literally to be half-hearted or to be untrue to the great God and his principles and simply wanting to represent ourselves as righteous. Well, hypocrisy absolutely destroys character. Christ said, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Well, well, this kind of hypocrisy then is the exact opposite of character formation, of character development. It's kind of like the reverse. It's kind of like losing character, negative character, if you can call it that. And when we live contrary to what we know is right, it destroys whatever character that God will use in his family. I mean, we're, we're, we're making a lie, really, of our pretense, if that's the case. Remember, the whole purpose of human life is coming to the reality to understand the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. We have to seek God to gain that. It's a blessing of God to come to the knowledge of what is right and wrong, to understand the law of God, to understand the spirit of the law, and in turn, choosing to do what is right, consistently requiring ourselves to do what is right, in spite of the fact sometimes we're tempted, sometimes Satan society and our own human nature is kind of pulling us the wrong way, but we're kind of determined, and we are determined we will not compromise. We want to develop that character. It is a pattern of doing right in our life over and over and over again until it becomes second nature, becomes who we are, becomes uh, what we're identified with in a genuine way. Well, over a lifetime of requiring ourselves then to make the right choices and living those choices on a daily basis, not just when we're seen at church or the holy days, but daily in our lives. Well, well, if we do that at the end of our lives, God can actually say, now I know. I know you. I know who you are. I know how you think. I can trust you. In turn, God realizes that, that we trust him so he can trust us. And God can trust us then as a full-born, powerful, we might say, member of the family of God. And so God can have tremendous confidence in giving us that great power, tremendous power and authority to accomplish his purpose in the kingdom of God, to be responsible for thousands of human beings in love and mercy, but yet with the law of God and showing them, if I can say, selling them in a right way on the benefits of God's way of life and that it actually works. And, of course, our assignment in this life must be to demonstrate God's way of life works for us. doesn't matter what the principle is or if others profit from it. We must demonstrate that God's way of life is working for us. We can't wait to the millennium. So it becomes clear why Christ blasted this sense of hypocrisy and again, probably we could consider it the greatest sin, knowing to do right and rejecting it. Yeah. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Back a few chapters, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. 15, 1. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, 
where they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. That was their tradition. And he, that is Christ, answered them, said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? You break the laws of God because of your tradition for convenience. Verse 4, For for God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, in contrast, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God then he need not, Christ said, honor his father and mother. That's kind of the assumption. One, one can appear righteous, but yet neglect their own family, their own parents. Thus you have made the commandment of God of none effect, of no effect, by your tradition. So profess to be righteous, but flaunting literally the commandments and the laws of God. Verse 7. And Christ says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, verse 8, these people draw near me with their mouth, and we must be careful that we don't follow this pattern. And honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse 9, and in vain they worship me. So we could worship Christ in vain if we don't live that way of life fully, if we compromise if we profess Christ and the laws of God, but compromise constantly. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So minus obedience to the great God and developing right godly character, decision-making, we can worship Jesus Christ in vain. It doesn't accomplish what God wants, which is character within us the mind of God, making right decisions, even though we're tempted otherwise, over and over again. And and when we fail, we're determined. We repent, we turn around, we're determined to go God's way more fully. Well, none of us want to worship Christ in vain, but it is absolutely imperative that we root out this tendency in our nature, we as human beings have, which will increasingly become common at the end of the age, before Christ's return. 1 Timothy 4, as Paul indicated. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse, let's read verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Notice, now the Spirit expressly says, or indicates, that in latter times, in the end of the days, some will depart from the faith, the true faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Notice that. These spirits are influencing people, speaking lies and hypocrisy. In other words, claiming people claiming to be one thing and really living a different lifestyle, even internally. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So the spirit of hypocrisy is not limited, obviously, to Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. in Christ's day. It's such a common trait of human nature that we all have some tendency that way to know what is right and to justify ourselves. You know, we always have an excuse, a reason to justify ourselves. And, of course, that's hypocrisy. 
We have to be willing to change, to admit we're wrong, and to follow God more fully. So I might ask, so what is so dangerous about a little hypocrisy? It's part of human nature. What's so dangerous about it? Well, first of all, just like leaven, it tends to spread. It can spread in our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at verse 6. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Paul says, your glorying is not good. A little bit of self-righteousness claiming to be more righteous than apparently what they were. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little bit of hypocrisy even can spread in one's life. Verse 7, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly are unleavened. That time of the year we're unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So a little leaven, we might say a little hypocrisy, if given enough time in our life, will we'll leaven or spread through the entire fabric of our character. We compromise a little bit. Later we compromise a little bit more. A little bit of lusting here, a little bit of lusting there, maybe a little more later. Eventually, major catastrophic failure in our life. A little white lie here and a little white lie there. And sooner or later, a major deception is needed to cover ourselves to keep that, those deceptions hidden. One lie leads to another lie. Secondly, hypocrisy focuses most often on what people think rather than what God thinks. You know, we have God to honor, to be concerned about how does he look at us. And our God is the one and the only one who has the capacity to bless us in the present and extend our life forever, forever. Human beings, we can try to impress them, but they don't have that capacity. So we should be more focused often not on what other people think, rather on what God thinks and how he sees us and how ultimately then how he can use us in his family. So we shouldn't do, as Christ said, our charitable deeds to impress others, praying publicly and, and doing good deeds to be seen by others. Uh, Matthew ch chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 illustrates that. We should do our charitable deeds privately and quietly, not trumpeting them to the world. And third, really, hypocrisy is very short-sighted when you think about it. It focuses on the here and now, try to look better, even though inwardly we're violating crucial principles. And we're, we're focusing on the here and now rather than eternity, the potential for future life ahead of us. The here and now only lasts for such a brief period of time, doesn't it? As we know, our own life, it's brief. Or what is your life as you analyze it? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. We find that in James 4, 14. And that's the way our life is. It's 70 or 80 or 90 years may seem like a while, but... You know, by that time, it seems like such a period of time, it soon vanishes away. We die as the way of all flesh. 
when we can easily think, why didn't I put more effort in developing godly character that's like spiritual gold that God can use and that I can use in the resurrection as well? Well, for you and I who have God's spirit, putting the present in value ahead of the future as we try to impress others, I think it's kind of like the guy who buys lumber to build a permanent home and then burns the lumber in the fireplace because he likes the crackle and the pop of a pretty fire. You and I are attempting to build something more lasting that will last forever. And in truth, not something that may look nice, at least look nice, others looking on, but is quickly consumed. So we might ask, then, how about us in the living church of God? We profess to follow God. We profess to follow Christ. How are we doing in that realm of the leaven of hypocrisy, the hidden sin in our life? We might ask ourselves, do we secretly harbor any areas of our life of hypocrisy in our hearts where we profess one thing and yet we do another and we're not genuine through and through? Are there any areas of our life that we know better? We know better. We hope other people don't find out. We want to change, but we haven't put the effort into it yet. Or we show a pretense of righteousness, but we flat out don't live the truth. And I know, you know, that's something that we have to analyze ourselves. It's so easy to spot hypocrisy in others, isn't it? But harder in our own selves. And that's part of the lesson here of looking for the hidden leavening and hypocrisy in our life. It's in the nook and the crannies that we might not realize is there unless we look very carefully in our life. We have to live the truth. So the danger of the leaven of hypocrisy is that it can corrupt and spread throughout our life, through and through. And if we're not genuine, if we're not real, as God expects us to be, God can't use us. In the end, he cannot use hypocrisy. Individuals who profess truth and as taught by Christ, but yet who really don't live it, who haven't become, who don't apply the spirit of law. So how can God use us in his family in the millennium and beyond to teach others if we keep the majority of God's laws in this life? You know, on, on the surface, the letter of the law, but inwardly, we're corrupt about the spirit of the law, key principles of the great God, and, you know, the spirit of the law. Let's say maybe we go through the motions, the motions of tithing and outwardly keeping the Sabbath, but inwardly, maybe we're unforgiving or we're lusting. It could be for another individual it could be for material things that we don't have that wouldn't be good for us in the first place. Or maybe we're full of our own vanity and the need to be seen and to be elevated in other people's eyes. The desire to be admired and elevated, kind of almost kind of universal in human nature that we have not worked through or worked with or gotten rid of. Could God use us to lead other potential members of his family. If spiritually we're outwardly, on the surface we appear godly, but inwardly we're hypocrites, uh, especially as applies to the spirit of the law. Well, 
as we attempt to get rid of the leaven of the Pharisees, of hypocrisy, where should we look individually? What nooks and crannies of our life might we find some of the hypocrisy that will do us a lot of harm, that will corrupt us, that will keep us from having as an abundant life, even here and now, as we, as we would have stronger relationships, stronger relationship with the great God, but with each other in our congregations, with a husband or a wife, if we really don't retain the spirit of the law. We, we retain hypocritical ways of thinking and lusting and being greedy and desirous with our own vanity of being elevated and seen. Well, in the remainder of the time, we are going to look at several areas of potential hypocrisy that we can root out in our life. Number one, how about our word? That is, when we give our word, are we into the character trait and positive habit of only speaking the truth? Only speaking the truth. And in this day and age, convenience lying, I think of it as convenience lying, is part of the entertainment media. It's kind of like an art form in a way. It's been taken to a very high art form. If you watch even a few minutes, typically, the so-called sitcoms, or I think of them as sick-coms, you know, situation comedies that are common on television. And you find a main humor theme that is creative lying. And you notice that, creative lying. One of the characters gets caught in some difficult situation, some kind of trap, and the audience howls with laughter as he creatively lies his way out of it. And that really is one form of entertainment. It's so common in the world's entertainment media. And one might ask, okay, so what's wrong with this? Is it a little harmless lying okay if it doesn't hurt anybody, if maybe it's for their own good, some would say? So who is the father of lies after all? Anyway, John chapter 8, verse 44, we see Jesus Christ here addresses it. John chapter 8, verse 44, Christ said, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, ultimately no truth. He intends to deceive all he has. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and a father of it, the originator of lies and hypocrisy. You know, the entirety of God's word is truth. You might call it reality, the way the universe operates, the spiritual laws of God, even even the physical laws of God represent truth, the way they operate. We find in Psalm 119, Psalm 119 and verse 160, 119, 160, it says, The entirety of your word is truth. The entirety of God's word. It's not, con- it's not contradictory. It's not full of fables and lies though people sometimes mistranslate the Scripture. But the entirety of God's Word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. And God's judgments, God's way of life, God's agenda, God's purpose, 
it will endure forever. It's successful. God will succeed with his purpose. So think about it. Our God, bottom line, represents reality, truth, what works, what actually is workable in the universe. If this is not the case, how would we ever know in God's word, for example, what was true and what was legitimate and what was deception? If this was the case, there would be no way we could trust our creator. And so truth is the foundation of God's ways, of God's laws, his way of life and our future. And it should be our way of life, current tense. We want to get there and we want to apply it at a deeper level. Doesn't it make sense that telling the truth absolutely must become part of our nature, become part of our habit, our good character trait? It must be our our reality. We, we get in, in, let's say, the tradition of always telling the truth. Otherwise, God could never trust us if that wasn't our pattern. Now, we all make mistakes, but hopefully we realize it and we repent. We put it behind us and we resolve to always be truthful. Well, if not, God can never trust us to teach us to lead other human beings into his family. You know, another father of lies would be in the making if that were the case. One clear principle then that we must come to live by We always tell the truth. We teach our children that from very small. We always tell the truth. It is the foundation of God's way of life and, of course, our future. That being said, there is also one caution, I suppose. We're not obligated to tell everything we know just because someone asks a question. Now, we have to be wise and harmless. Many times the hypocritical... Sadducees and Pharisees, they attempted to entrap Jesus Christ with a question, and sometimes he simply did not answer. That's occasionally legitimate. And other times he asked a question in return when they're trying to entrap him. So our obligation in character training must be to always tell the truth. But we don't always have to tell everything we know. We have to be wise and harmless. Years ago, I had a business acquaintance tell me that it was okay to lie to another person if it was for their own good. In other words, you kind of place yourself in a position of God trying to figure out what is for the other person's good. And some people say, well, what's wrong with that if it's for the other person's good? Well, you know, in some rare cases, you might save somebody from worry or fear if you didn't tell them the truth, maybe... uh, maybe about their medical condition or the finances or something. But the question becomes, will they trust you in the future when they realize you lied? Will they trust you ever again? Or more importantly, will God be able to trust you or me in the future, in his family, in the kingdom of God? We always tell the truth, the foundation of God's way of life. So the absolute repeating foundation for God Using us in his family, being able to use us in his family, is truthfulness. Let's go on to the second point. We're speaking about hypocrisy. Do we claim to be fully committed to our God, to want a strong spiritual relationship with God, and yet put 
minimal effort comparatively into it. Probably for every one of us, there can be some level of hypocrisy there, I guess, in that area of our life. We want what God has to offer. Oh, yes, we do. We want a better future. We want blessings. But we may not want to always pay the price at total commitment and surrender to the great God. Do we put our relationship with God absolutely above all else? Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. Verse 26. Interesting uh, scripture here in comparison of what's important to us in life in order of importance. And Christ said, if anyone comes to me, if you and I propose, as we have, to be to covenant with the great God, if anyone comes to me and does not properly translated intent, does not love less his father and mother, or even a wife or children, we could say husband, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, meaning especially his own time. We only have so many hours in a day. In his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. We can't be Christ's disciple. And ultimately, then, of course, we can't be born into the family of God as, as first fruits. And whoever does not bear his cross, whatever difficulties we run into in this age, in Satan's world, and come after me, cannot, in other words, come after Jesus Christ fully, cannot be my disciple. You know, I've interacted with many, many individuals over the years that could not put God first in their life above a family member. Many of them never made it. Typically, they never made it that far, at least to uh, commitment and baptism. But in every case, they didn't make spiritual progress when they couldn't put let's say, a family member, a husband or wife or parents or children, uh, in importance beneath our surrender, our commitment to the great God above all else. And I've seen countless individuals put their employer above God. And you know how that happens. It is a test in life. Do we put more confidence in the great God or our employer? And other individuals put their husband or their wife above God. They couldn't disappoint a husband or a wife about fully obeying God, maybe on the Sabbath or holy days or whatever. So sometimes in extended family, a great number of people become a higher priority to themselves than God himself and God's principles, and they function that way. But absolutely anything that we put ahead of God is going to keep us from succeeding. Absolutely anything in our life. God has to know. Can he trust us above all else? How about our time? Is it easy to go a few days without any effective praying and studying of God's word? Notice I said effective, you know, heartfelt, genuine. We know when we're just kind of going through the motions, kind of clock time, maybe mumbling a prayer or reading a few verses or thinking about something else, our mind is on something we want to do incredible, but that is really putting our own life, our own time ahead of the great God in our attempt to communicate with him in a right way and to listen to God through his word as well. And isn't that, if we're kind of half-heartedly praying or studying and thinking about other things, isn't that a form of vain repetition? 
going through the motions, as Christ indicated. And he said, and when you do pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. So we must avoid that. We must show honor and respect, putting God first in priority in our life, even with our time. And some have assumed that they can put God first on a weekly basis. Uh, maybe they put more into it. Maybe it's on the Sabbath or on the weekend, Sunday. And they assume you know, they go to church, etc., on the Sabbath, but they put a little more time in praying maybe on, on a Sunday. But they assume that that's putting God first. That's what it's all about. But actually, to put God first in our life, it must be daily, not weekly. To really show God we're putting him first, no matter if we are busy, we will. generally we all are, but it must be on a daily basis. We communicate with the great God, you know, express our needs and, and in prayer and our respect to the great God. We ask God to gently correct us, and we read his word. We hear what he has to say as well. Let's move on to a third point about the leaven of hypocrisy, looking for it in our own life. Number three, do we claim that we believe that we are the literal spiritual brothers and sisters of each other, that we are literally that? We've received God's spirit as part of God's begotten future family and put almost no effort into strengthening our family, our spiritual family, our congregation. Notice 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. And John said, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life. Now we're spiritually on that track to eternal life because we love the brethren, because we have outgoing concern. God has to see that in our life so he can know that we will have outgoing concern for the thousands he will be giving us responsibility over. We have real genuine concern. We want to see them succeed. It is our agenda in our life. goes on to say, he who does not love his brother abides in death. If, if we don't have the capacity to love without going concern our brothers in the church, and yes, the world, as much as lies within us and our ability, but really, you might say week in and week out, within our congregation, within our fellowship, it's a symbol. If we show that, we have that genuine outgoing concern. So, according to the Apostle John, this is the sign that we have spiritual maturity. We have to recognize this doesn't come naturally, does it? What's natural is want to put ourselves first, to ignore others, to want to see that we succeed. You know, we, we slowly, hopefully, we're making that change. We're, we're reminding ourselves that, that we're being trained for that very purpose, showing love and outgoing concern from the family of God to human beings in the millennium, sharing the way of life out of concern for them. We want to see them succeed. Well, we learn to love the brethren, even though sometimes maybe some seem unlovable maybe we seem unlovable to some but it's all part of our training beginning of the millennium a lot of people will be seemingly unlovable they'll be against us initially even against jesus christ 
We have to be able to have concern, overriding concern. We want to, in time, win them over, gently correct them, yes, keep them from violating the letter of the law, but we want to win them over without going concerned. We're here to help. We're here to help them succeed in a better way of life. Luke chapter 6 and verse 32. Luke chapter 6 and verse 32. Looking at at this thought further. Verse 32 we read. Verse 32. But if you love those who love you. You know, you, you love those who really like you. And they show outgoing concern. You know, they ask you questions and... They reach out to you. Well, what credit is that to you? I mean, it's kind of natural. For even sinners love those who love them. I mean, isn't that natural to like, to love other people who we're close with, who, you know, we're attracted to? Even sinners love those who, who love them. Verse 33. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Or even sinners do the same. And, of course, Christ knows that at the beginning of the millennium, uh, we won't be done good by the world at that point. They'll be in rebellion, in rejection. But we still have to have a, a level of concern and, and love, the big picture. Even though some people are put out of their misery, they're so filled with hate and anger. But we come, even in, with some level of discipline, out of love and concern. We really want to see them succeed. Verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? That's normal human nature. For even sinners lend to sinners who receive as much back. Verse 35, but love your enemies. Now, that's a test sometimes. People that rub us the wrong way, but we need to go through the motions, develop that character, at least outgoing concern. Love your enemies. Do good and lend hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And difficult as it is, Christ said, if you develop that level of character, your reward, particularly in the kingdom of God, will be great, will be higher. You'll have more people to show that kind of love too. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He's kind to the unthankful and evil. And you know, the Most High wants to see the evil succeed, not in their evil, but in approaching God, developing a right character that God eventually can use in his family. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. In other words, don't assume that in this age you can always read people's minds and you know their motivation. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Don't, don't be a know-it-all. Don't go around condemning others. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Practice that principle. Release. Let it go. There may be times they have not repented to you. Only God can release their sins, but we can let go, as Stephen did. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. God will forgive us in those things that we repent of. Finally, verse 38, give. Give of your time. Give of your efforts, your outgoing concern, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. In other words, uh, the bag's not going to be all full of air here. Running over will be put into your bosom, where with the same measure that you use, 
how we interact, as we develop that level of character, it will be measured back to you with blessings. You know, this can be applied right in the living church of God among us, not just in the world, but right here among us. We can practice it, developing that character, that trait of God. So when we have washed each other's feet at Passover, which we have, we're making a statement in a way to God that we're willing to serve the brethren as a way of life, even though it doesn't come natural. That's what we're willing to do. We're willing to be trained in service. We have to ask, do we carry that throughout the year? Do we keep that in mind? Or is it partially just a facade? We need to root out that leaven, that hypocrisy. And number four, let's move on to a fourth point. Number four, do we claim we value the sanctity of our physical families and yet demonstrate often a great deal of self-centeredness? Now, again, I'm speaking within our physical families this time. For those with young children, what is our children's greatest need when you think about it? For eternity, what's their highest level need for eternity? Is it not to be lovingly taught God's way of life by example, especially, but also instruction so they can, at their level, so they can acquire the mind of God in time and really want to be a part of God's family? They see it reflected in your life. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, we can apply this to us as spiritual Israel, O Lord our God, the Lord is one. One purpose, God the Father and Jesus Christ are unified. We want to be unified as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your emotions, your, your inner core, and with all your soul, all your life force, how you live your life, and with all your strength in your activities, in the things you do, in things I do. Verse 6, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. In other words, put effort into it. It doesn't mean bore them to death. It doesn't mean reading 30 chapters, but you shall teach them in principle diligently, meaning daily, and and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, you know, even maybe when you're sitting on the couch watching television, you're comparing, you're comparing God's way sometimes with others who aren't fully following it. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, you know, you, you're out in the street, you see some maybe inner city, some, stumble, some stumbling drunk, and you compare God's way with the way this leads. When you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you're even relaxing, and when you rise up, and so the implication is that we have that mindset as parents, always finding ways of bringing principles home. God's way of life works. We're going to have a better life for it. And we convince them lovingly and gently with this in mind. And if we neglect this instruction of God, it's almost inevitable that our children will grow up and will go their own way for now. If we are to be teachers of others in the kingdom of God, the place to begin is with our own children. And none of us do it perfectly, but we must take it seriously. The place to begin is with our own children. 
And of course, we will, in a way, repeat the process in the millennium, even though they're not all children. But we'll be applying those principles of love and outgoing concern and continually teaching them God's way, showing them how it works, how they're going to benefit, how the whole world is going to benefit, and in turn selling them, if I can use that term, on God's way of life. How about our marriage relationships? Do we husbands truly love our wives as their own bodies? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, that's, that's the high principle, the direction we should be working towards. Ephesians 5, verse 28, as a reminder. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. It's kind of like saying you really love your wife in the right way. You learn to. You take care of her needs, even her emotional needs. It's like loving yourself. It's going to come back. You're going to benefit. That's not our primary motivation, our own benefit, but this is the way God's law operates. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh. You know, we don't try to injure ourselves, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Kind of a parallel here is Jesus Christ does the church. Verse 30, for we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they'll become one spiritually, highest level becoming one, one spiritually, kind of operating like God the Father and Jesus Christ, even though Jesus Christ knew and knows that he's under the authority of the Father, but they operate that way together, not really arguing it out as we humans sometimes do. This is a great mystery, but I speak according concerning Christ and the church. So there's a very great parallel there between husband and wife in the marriage and Jesus Christ in the church. Uh, marriage is a spiritual relationship. So we as husbands have a tremendous responsibility before God. When a woman isn't loved properly and cherished pro- properly, and we find that also respect doesn't come naturally. We see that let the wife, in verse 33, see that she respects her husband. Well, respect should be unconditional, but it's easier, of course, to respect a husband who is showing the proper love. But even so, respect is not conditional. It is just like it's a husband's obligation to learn how to love his wife fully. It's a wife's obligation to to respect her husband, even at times when he is not always honorable. She shows him the respect that God expects. It is a symbiotic relationship. One builds the other. How about our God-given responsibility? Then on the other side, a male-female equation of mothers and wives. Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. We'll look at Titus here, chapter 2 and verse 3. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Verse 4, that they admonish the young women, that older women can be good examples, to love their husbands, to love their children, and to have their well-being at heart. And it goes on to say to be discreet and chaste, homemakers, 
you know, making a, a, a good, warm environment. It says good, obedient to their husbands. Sometimes this can be misunderstood, but it means basically following the lead, at least, the lead of their husband, just like Jesus Christ follows the lead of God the Father in a similar relationship, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So wives' principal emphasis is to be nurturers of the physical family, which is really a type of the family of God, the developing family of God. Society has so effectively blurred the God-given differences in the roles of husband and wife. So we have to ask, who's the standard, God or society? Of course, we know it's God. Well, one final point as we close here, one final point, number five, do we claim to be fully supportive of the very work of God and yet make it a very low priority in our life? What is our priority? What is our agenda? Is it our own, very short-sighted, or is it God's? That's the long-term view, and it benefits us as well. Final scripture in John chapter 4. We'll turn to John chapter 4 and verse 34. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, My food, what keeps me going, my sustenance, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Of course, that was Christ's responsibility in his time. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. They are already white for harvest. Verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. And both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For this is the saying is true. In this saying is it is true. One sows and another reaps. Well, our days are numbered before the return of Jesus Christ, as we all know. Time is getting short. We, may, we need to make our time count. We need to be supportive of God's agenda in every way, in our conversation, in our congregations, in our offerings, in our prayers, and even in our commitment to being regularly among God's people, if at all possible, regularly, every Sabbath, every holy day, among God's begotten family, encouraging each other. Brethren, Whenever we find any evidence of hypocrisy in our life, not in others, but in our life, we need to understand that though it may be hidden from others, it is not hidden from our God. Hopefully, we set about attempting to remove any remaining leaven of hypocrisy, which can be so insidious in our life. We have unimaginable blessings ahead of us. Let's fulfill our calling and our destiny and making our calling and election sure.